The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His graces? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood? In the blood? In the soul cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white? blood of the Lamb. Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed? Are you washed? In the blood. In the blood. In the soul cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments Spotless are they white as snow Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb Some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore I'll fly away men know that they are sinners before God. They may be pagans, never having heard of Jesus Christ, but they know they are sinners. And so we have, even among pagan religions, we have religion in all cultures, among all people. There is something in every man's heart to worship. There is something in every man's heart to turn away from his sin. Every man knows he is in peril, that they will have to face an afterlife. Now, they also know those who have heard any of the Christian gospel, they know that to turn aside from their sin might be very uncomfortable. And so they find a refuge, 
a place of hiding so they will not have to forsake their sin. There seems to be no comfortable recourse but to hide, to make up stories, to make up teachings that are self-indulgent. Now, without self-denial, there can be no salvation. But we have made up self-indulgent beliefs in which we hide. Now, it's obvious that those who resort to lies for a refuge regard those lies to be the truth. This fact leads us to raise a primary and fundamental question. Do we have any rule or any standard that will show what is truth and what is falsehood? Now, men have countless opinions about religion. Not all of them can be true. How then can we determine which are true and which are false? A listener said to me recently, I've always been taught, once saved, always saved, that I cannot lose my salvation. But it seems that I'm hearing a different doctrine from you. I need to understand this. What this believer has said is of vital import. Because every opinion cannot be true. And every doctrine taught cannot be true. And so how do we determine whether a doctrine is true or false? How do we determine whether a teaching that we're listening to is true or false? We have literally an infallible test. I want to share this test with you. Salvation to be real and available must always be salvation from sin. Everything else fails. Any system of religion that does not break the power of sin is a lie. That's why this very subtle lie is so dangerous that teaches that you are covered by the blood of Jesus. The same as in the Old Testament where you were declared righteous by the blood of bulls and goats. And then when you reduce the blood of Jesus to the same level as that of bulls and goats, and a false teaching begins to go forth that says you can never leave your sin, you are always going to be a sinner. And I tell you this with deep sadness of heart, a common American cultural belief is that everyone is going to go to a better place when they die, regardless of how they live their life here. And secondly, that you cannot leave your sin. I hear people say, Nobody's perfect. Well, what are they saying? Are they saying everyone is is not fully mature? No, that's not what they're saying. Are they saying everyone has infirmities so they don't have the physical strength to do something? No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying that you cannot turn your back on that temptation that will come against you. But But don't worry, you're saved anyway. You don't have to be concerned about that because God has unconditional love for you. This is a refuge of lies. And we're going to look in the scriptures literally at what Jesus has to say about righteousness. Now we know in the New Testament we know that sin 
cannot be overcome by the law. Righteousness has to come to us by another way. What is that way by righteousness? What is that way by which righteousness comes to a man or woman? Is it a false righteousness or is it true? So I say to you, salvation to be real must be salvation from sin at the present moment. Everything else fails. Any system of religion that does not break the power of sin in the present is a lie. If it does not expel selfishness and lust for the things of the world, and if it does not generate love for God and man, if it does not generate joy and peace and all of the fruit of the Spirit, it is false and worthless and a refuge of lies. It can be of no use. It is no better than a curse. The man you see who is dressed in fine clothing comes into the body of Christ, prays a passionate prayer, says all of the right words, and then goes out and lives like a devil, lying, lusting, cheating. This man is following a false gospel. There's no integrity in his life. He's a make-believe Christian. He is hiding in a refuge of lies that has been made available by Calvinism, by what we call the Reformed Church. It is a refuge of lies because it cannot break the power of sin in the present and continues to teach that you are saved in spite of your sin. So any system, any teaching of the gospel that fails in this vital respect of breaking sin in the present is a lie, and it is of no use, and it will be a curse in the life of any person who hides in a church, in a religion that lies about our sin, that which does not generate in us the spirit of heaven and make us like God, no matter where it originates or by what reasoning it is defended, it is a lie. It is fled to as a refuge, a refuge of lies. Again, if what you are taught does not generate a spirit of prayer in your heart, if it does not bring you into unity with God, with Jesus, if it does not bring us into intimate fellowship and sympathy with Jesus, that teaching is a lie. If it does not produce a heavenly mind, expel a worldly mind, and wean us from the love of the world, it is a lie. If the gospel that you listen to allows you to continue enjoying the entertainment of this world, the gospel you are listening to is a lie. It is simply not true. To be true, it must produce in you a heavenly mind and expel the worldly mind. 
if it does not generate in us the love required in the scriptures, the love of God and of his worship and of his people, indeed of all mankind, if it does not produce all the states of mind that equip the soul for heaven, then that teaching utterly fails the test. Now here, let me stop just a moment. Some of you may be saying, well, the gospel does not, in fact, do for men all that you are claiming. It does not make professing Christians heavenly-minded. It does not make Christians dead to the world. It does not fill them with love, joy, and peace. Well, wait. Let's say you have a physical condition, a disease. And you go to the doctor and he gives you a prescription of medicine. You're assured that this medicine has healing power, but it must be taken. A man may go to the drugstore, fill the prescription, and he takes it and finds that it is bitter. And so he puts it in his cupboard, and he never takes it. Now, he may also provide himself with a counterfeit medication to take its place. He may follow it with something that will instantly counteract its influence in the system. In any case, the effectiveness of the medicine is not disproved. It only proves that he has not used it fairly and honestly. Now, this is true also of the gospel of Jesus. You must take it, and you must use it according to the directions. Otherwise, its failure is not its fault, it is your fault. It is to no advantage, then, to say that the gospel does not save men from sin. It may indeed be counterfeited, it may be rejected, but he who receives it in his heart will surely find his heart blessed, changed, and transformed by it. The gospel transforms men from sin to holiness. If the gospel that you follow has not transformed you from sin to holiness, it is a false gospel, or you have not taken the medication that has been offered by the Holy Spirit. The true gospel will make men peaceful and holy and heavenly in life and in death. Millions of such cases can be seen in the record of the world's history. Their lives demonstrate the reality and preciousness of the salvation that the gospel promises. So I want to look with you. I want to look with you at the scriptures. I don't want how do I put this? So many people are teaching on the radio, in the pulpits. I've not come as your teacher. I've come to lift up Jesus in the scriptures. I want you to see the heart of Jesus. Now, I can pick and choose certain scriptures, and I can forge those together into a doctrine. I won't do that. You come to this broadcast because you know, if you've listened for any length of time, that I'm going to say unvarnished things to you from the heart of Jesus, and I'm going to show you in the scriptures what I am saying to you so that there can be no doubt in your mind that what I am saying is actually the Word of God. Not one text and then build your theology, but actually look at the context of the passage. 
So let's talk now about what's happening with the disciples from the Gospel of John. They have left the upper room for the last time before Jesus is to be crucified. Judas has left, and John simply says, and it was night. It was more than darkness outside. It was darkness upon the earth because the Son of Man was about to be offered as a priestly sacrifice. In John, the 13th chapter, verse 31, Jesus begins to speak about how he must be glorified. And he also begins to talk to them about their need to love one another, their need to be compassionate one with another, that men would know that they are the disciples of Jesus by the love. May I put it another way? They are going to know that you are a disciple by the absence of sin in your life, by the love of God. God is love. That's why John Wesley said that a man who is perfect must demonstrate it by perfect love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. In verse 36, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Because Jesus has just told him he's going to go away and and Peter can't come and the other disciples can't come now. And Jesus speaks to him and says, where, I, where I'm going, you're not able to follow me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter says to him, Lord, why am, not, why am I not able to go with you now? I will lay down my life for you. And this is that famous passage where Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a roaster I'm sorry, a rooster may by no means crow until you will deny me three times. I'm reading from the Lavender translation. And then comes chapter 14. They're all concerned. Jesus has told them he's going away, that they can't come. And Peter is saying, look, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. And Jesus now begins to comfort them and soothe their hearts with these wonderful words that have so many times comforted my heart. Your heart must not be troubled. You believe in God. You must believe in me. There are many dwelling places in my Father's house, and if not, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. Even if I may go and may prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know where I'm going and you know the way. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know your, we don't know where you're going. So, how are we able to know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through the gate. And the gate is Jesus Christ. Muhammad is not able to open the gate of heaven for you. Buddha is not able to open the gate of heaven for you. Hinduism, Shintoism, whatever the God you serve, it is a refuge of lies. The Lord God of heaven came to this earth personally, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says to Thomas, if you'd known me, 
You had also known my father, and from now on you know him and, and have seen him. And Philip spoke up and said, Will you make the father known to us? And that will be sufficient for us. And Jesus says to him, I'm with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? The one having seen me has seen the Father? And so how do you say you make the Father known to us? Do you not believe that I am in union with the Father, and the Father is in union with me? The word that I speak to you I speak not from myself, but the Father, the one abiding in union with me, he himself does the work? He goes on, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one believing in me, the work that I do, that one will also do, and he will do greater things than these because I'm going to my Father. In fact, whatever you may ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you may ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you may love me, you must keep my commands. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus is now beginning to speak about the conditions that you must meet. And the first and foremost condition, after loving one another, is that you must keep the commands of Jesus. Now read carefully the rest of that chapter. You'll find in verse 23, that's John fourteen twenty-three. If anyone may love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make a dwelling place with him. Verse 27 I leave peace with you, I give to you my peace, not as the world gives do I give to you. Your heart must not be troubled, and it must not be afraid. And then you go to the 15th chapter, and it's this incredible description of the vine, with the Father as the vine dresser. And every branch in me not bearing fruit, he cuts it off. And every branch bearing fruit, he always prunes. You'll see increasingly that the fruit we bear is the fruit of the Spirit, spoken of in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It is righteousness. It is innocence. It is not sin. verse 4 you must remain in union with me and I with you just as the branch is not able to bear fruit from itself it may not if it may not remain in the vine so neither can you if you may not remain in union with me I am the vine you are the branches the one remaining in union with me and I with him this one bears much fruit because apart from me you are not able to do anything. If you say to me, my brother, my sister, I am not able to live a righteous life, I must, out of these passages, say to you, the reason you are not able to bear righteous fruit is because you are still in union with the devil. I don't mean that to sound harsh. I mean to speak the truth to you. We have in America not even begun to understand the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we are going to have to be in union with Jesus and not in union with the devil. That's clear. If anyone, verse 6, may, if anyone may not remain in union with me, he was thrown out as the branch and was dried up. They gathered them and threw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you may re remain in union with me, 
and my word may remain in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it will happen for you. (coughs) Do you understand? If you look at verse 10, if you may keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the commandments of my Father and remain in his love. Verse 16, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you may go and may bear fruit, and your fruit may remain, that whatever you may ask the Father in my name, I may give it to you. I command these things to you that you may love one another. And so a man says to me, well, I'm praying that my football team wins. praying that my football team wins are you kidding me another says i'm praying that i'll win the lotto the jackpot and pastor i'll give 10 percent of my millions to the national prayer chapel and i have simply answered no thank you if you win the lotto i don't want one penny in tithe from it it is the devil's money It is not money from the hand of God. Please hear today what I'm trying to say to you. I want, more than anything else, total, complete union with Jesus and every tie between my heart and the devil's heart to be cut. I want no connection with him. And by the grace of God, I stand that that is done. By faith, I stand that the devil has no hold on me, that I've been washed in the blood, that I'm clean, that bitterness and anger have been removed from my heart. I stand by faith that lust has been removed from my heart, I stand by faith for the joy, for the life of prayer and scripture. I stand by faith on the promises of God. Now, when we go to Matthew, and Jesus said to the disciples after he washed their feet, or before actually with Peter, The word I've spoken to you has already made you clean. Well, the word he'd spoken to them was found, first of all, in the Beatitudes, progressively, one laying on top of the next, and then through the Sermon on the Mount, one godly Christian man would every night get on his knees and read aloud the entire Sermon on the Mount as the prelude to his time of prayer with Jesus. Now he says in verse 17, this is Matthew the fifth chapter, verse 17, do not begin to think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. He says, For truly I say to you, until the heaven and the earth may pass away, one iota or one stroke may by no means pass away from the law until all things come to pass. Well, all things have not come to pass yet, Jesus has not returned in glory. But we are not under the law. The scriptures are are very clear that we are not under the law. Romans, the sixth chapter, For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. But it's also very clear in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of grace from God is life eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is where men and women become very confused because we've been taught that grace is a blanket that covers us over and leaves us in our sin. That's never the definition of grace in Scripture. That's the definition of the refuge of lies put out by the modern church. But it is a refuge of lies. As we move further into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes very clear what he's saying and what he's not saying. In verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness... He's not saying, my righteousness that covers you. That's a given. His righteousness is perfect. Jesus never sinned. No, he's speaking about you. He's saying, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness may exceed beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you may by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the righteousness in perfect outward deportment, was not sufficient to open the gateway to heaven. You heard them say in the past, in ancient times, you shall not commit murder, and whoever may murder will be subject to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to the judgment. And whoever may say to his brother, Rotka, or stupid, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever may say, you fool, will be the subject of the Gehenna of the fire. In other words, he'll go to hell. Consequently, if you may bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you must leave your gift there before the altar, and you must go away you must be reconciled to your brother. And then after having returned, you must offer your gift. And he goes on and speaks about the behavior that must be manifest in the life of the person who is in union with Jesus Christ. You heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that every man looking on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now if your right eye causes you to sin, you must tear it out and must throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your members may perish than your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna or into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, you must cut it off and must throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of your members may perish than your whole body may be thrown into Gehenna. Now, he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking very directly. You heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist not the evil person, but whoever will strike you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. This is specifically referring to someone who insults you by backhanding you, insulting you. It's not to try to kill you. You have the right of self-defense. This is to insult you. Then let him insult you again. And the one wishing to sue you and take your shirt, give him the coat also. In other words, don't fight with them. Don't defend yourself in matters that you need to just allow God to take a hand in. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you must love your enemies, must bless the ones cursing you, must do good to the ones hating you, and you must pray for the ones abusing you and persecuting you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Oh, wait. <clears throat> I thought you could be a son of the Father in heaven and continue walking in your sin. Well, it's very clear 
Jesus is saying, verse 48, therefore, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is a a future construction. Literally, it's saying, you must walk in a way day by day where you do not sin against the Most High God. And if you have taken the position that you are unable to walk day by day, you have fled to a refuge of lies, and you have not spent sufficient time repenting, being washed, being cleansed, being changed by the power of Jesus Christ. You are a shallow believer, and you have been captured by the lies. You read on through and on and on and on. He's talking about this desperate need to become very serious with Jesus and not to go to a refuge of lies, but to be made righteous. Now, I want to share portion of a letter that I've just received. It's a letter that I think will encourage you. It's from a radio listener. I read her first letter to you. Her name was Lori. She wrote one week ago. She says, as I was on my way to the hospital... My family, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> my family was rushing me out the door in that moment, but I insisted that I write to you that letter first before I left. I knew you wouldn't receive it in the mail that same day when I needed God's healing the most. So I prayed and said, Lord, I know you know all things. And you already know the prayers Ray will pray next week by the time he receives this letter. Please hear them now, because I needed God's immediate help that night. I am so joyous to report what Jesus did. At the eleventh hour, when I was in the hospital that night, they were doing lots of tests on my heart and lungs. I was feeling so dizzy. I couldn't lay down. I couldn't breathe very well. It felt like something had a death grip squeezing me since Thanksgiving. It was awful because I was I was having all the heart attack symptoms. <clears throat> I've never been that close to death before. I really thought I was going to die. But late that night, suddenly, I felt a great release come over me. It was a complete peace. It relaxed my entire body. It felt like the death grip had finally let me go, and I could breathe normal for the first time in four weeks. The hospital did not give me any drugs, medicines, or anything. It was from nothing they did. I knew it was Jesus who showed up in that moment because he had planned all along on rescuing me to show his power. I'm so thankful he still has plans to use and keep me here longer in this world. And also he heard all the people's prayers, even the ones in the future six days later when you read my letter on the radio. I want to thank everyone so much for praying for me. May the Lord bless and reward each of you for caring. It means so much. Now there are other parts that she writes describing what happened. I want to skip forward to another part of the letter. 
at Thanksgiving this year, my uncle got mad at me, madder than ever before, because I would not join them in their parties, for I've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. First Peter 4, 4 says they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. This is exactly what was happening. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8 also says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. She writes, So because I did not listen to this wise instruction from the Proverbs, I rebuked my uncle at Thanksgiving, and because he became so enraged, I could feel his hate and rage toward me. From across the miles, after he went back home, I was deeply wounded by the words he spoke. But the Lord showed me several things I did wrong that I could have done to prevent this whole thing from happening. First, I could have avoided the fight altogether at Thanksgiving if I'd remained silent to all his mocking insults. I did stay silent most of the time that he visited, up until the very end, and when I finally couldn't take any more, I confronted him to defend myself. But by doing that, it caused his rage to explode, blasting me with every hateful word he could think of. I was not wearing my spiritual armor, so I wasn't prepared to guard my heart from the spiritual bullets. The wiser thing I should have done is to say not anything in my defense, but to allow God to defend me in his timing. And I should have gone into my room to pray for him and continued showering. Uh, thank you for interrupting. She says, I should have gone into my room to pray for him. I'll do better next time because I've learned some lessons from the pain of the whole experience. Jesus helped me finally make things right with him too because the next day after I came home from the hospital, my uncle came to visit by surprise to see his mother, my grandmother. He did not come to see me, and he, he made it clear he was still very angry at me. In front of all of the relatives who were visiting, when I saw him, I held out my arms to hug him, but he walked past me and said no, and said he was leaving. I could see in his face he was set and determined to stay angry. He's been known to hold grudges for years. But I knew nothing would be good if things were allowed to stay that way, so I had to try harder to fix things. So I ran out to him outside with tears, and I said, Please, let's not do this. I said, I'm sorry. Please forgive me, which is something my pastor taught me. I could not have done that without Jesus, because if I didn't know Jesus and have his love moving, moving me to make things right with people, I would have held a grudge just as long as my uncle before Jesus came to my life, I used to be very stubborn too, but Jesus has humbled me so much. I was able to pour out my heart to my uncle and sincerely said everything I could to clear things up between us until he was finally smiling and I told him he was welcome to stay. If God hadn't helped me do that, there's no way I could have done it on my own and we both would have held on to our anger, causing us both heart attacks. Jesus is so good and so amazing because he melted my heart and is currently teaching me how to love my enemies because he cannot use me for more things in the future if I don't first learn to love the ones who hate me the most. Jesus said a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And that is exactly how things have been in my family for the past 20 years. Even though my uncle was wrong in the way he treated me, I chose to have respect for him as a man and his position in our family. And also I had to be willing to apologize to my uncle, even though he never apologized to me, and sees how he has done anything wrong. I have to look at it from his perspective recognizing that his eyes are not open so he doesn't understand or see the bigger picture from God's perspective. 
and to take the attitude Jesus took by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. She wrote much more. But I'm so pleased that she has been healed in the name of Jesus and that she has been willing to humble her heart and walk in righteousness. For this is what God calls us to do, to humble our hearts, to repent, to make it right with others that we have in some way offended. But you may say, oh, I've got to confront them with their sin. Really? I thought that was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was our job to love and to teach and to open the word as we can for those who will listen. So today I want to ask you before we close this broadcast, have you chosen a refuge of lies? Or are you walking having the sin removed from your heart and being washed and made clean? Do you have union with Jesus Christ? That's the heart of it. Well, we're out of time today. I ask, please, if if this message is valuable to you, please hear the call of Jesus in your heart to send tithes and offerings to cover the cost of the broadcast. You can mail your check or money order or cash to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia. 22195. I also invite you to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find today's video, you'll find a podcast, and many other materials that will turn your heart toward Jesus and teach you from the Word, from the Scriptures, the way of the cross. God bless you, my brother, my sister. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I pray today the presence of Jesus will be with you. I'll talk to you soon. the presence of His glory with great joy Of his glory with great joy.